0: Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the April 11th, 1943 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes updates on the war from Algiers, London, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website, at BrickPickleMedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War
3: II Radio Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. I to get 30, 30, I get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
4: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, Makers of Admiral Radio, America's Smart Set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. There's more good news
1: from North Africa. Allied armies are threatening both Sousse and Taiwan as Rommel pulls his Axis forces into the northern tip of Tunisia. American bombers have again raided Naples. RAF planes were over southwest Germany last night. And Berlin says the Red Air Force has joined the Allied offensive against the German homeland. In Russia, the Nazis reported moving up supplies and men for a new summer drive. But for our first report from overseas, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Algiers. Charles Collingwood reporting. This
0: is Charles Collingwood Allied by now, most of the Axis forces in North Africa have been squeezed into the northeast corner of Tunisia. If there are any German or Italian troops south of Sousse, they are probably in our hands. This battle is moving so fast right now that all our information is miles out of date. But the last we heard, our forces from Fondouk were near Kairouan, and the 8th Army was well on the road between Sfax and Soos. The Germans are moving into the hills of northern Tunisia very fast. They are pausing only to fight isolated rear-guard actions and delay minefields. One of the most spectacular sides of this North African war right now is the campaign of American P-38 fighter boys that they're waging against the German transport planes. You know that yesterday they got 40, and a few days ago they got 18. Well, today they got 21 more. The Germans always use their transport planes in a crisis, and this is certainly a crisis now. They are using them to bring over gas and oil and ammunition. But we are taking a terrible toll. With today's 21, we have shot down 79 in the last six days. Rommel probably made his decision to pull up his stakes and head for the north as soon as the Eighth Army breached the Wadi Asareth. At that time, the big threat, retreat, was the possibility of a successful Allied thrust to the sea, like the one that is now moving from Fondus to Tyrolon to Sioux. It's up in the mountainous northeast corner of Tunisia, where something like 200,000 Axis troops must be concentrated now that the final battle for Tunisia will be fought. The British offensive up there around Medjez El Bab, which was designed to secure better battle positions for the final drive to Tunis, has made an advance of ten miles between Medjez El Bab and Menchah, and between one and two thousand prisoners were taken. The concentration of both forces on both sides up in northern Tunisia will be something terrific. All the forces that were stretched out from Tunis to the Marit line have been drawn up into that corner. There is no doubt that the German will be beaten up there. But it's time to take some of the hardest fighting that this war has seen to do it. They are entrenched in those mountains like oysters in their shells. And it's going to be a grim, bloody job to get them out. This is Charles Collingwood in North Africa, returning you to New York.
1: More news in just a moment. But first, here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio.
4: Will your radio be capable of tip-top performance one year from today? Admiral servicemen all over the country say yes, providing it receives proper care. The words proper care needn't frighten you. Your radio can have the best of care without inconvenience to you or your family. All you need do is make one phone call. Nothing else. Phone your admiral dealer, ask him to check your radio twice a year regularly. He'll then give it the thorough admiral step-by-step examination by which admiral dealers anticipate and prevent trouble. One of these steps is a checkup of all tubular and filter condensers, especially of the wax used in their construction. Should this wax melt, as sometimes happens when a set is used continuously, the result may be a defective circuit and a radio out of action. An admiral dealer, in making regular checkups, will discover such trouble spots early, take measures to correct them. He'll render many other services, which will help prolong the life of your radio. If he sees some vital part that needs replacement, he'll order a new one immediately, and despite shortages, probably have it in time to keep your radio in continuous action. Yes, your radio can have the best of care without inconvenience to you. Call your Admiral Dealer first thing tomorrow. Ask him to check your radio twice a year regularly. There's only a nominal charge for this service. Now here once again for Admiral Radio is Doug Edwards. The vast
1: Russian front remains comparatively quiet again today, but Moscow observers seem to believe that behind that curtain of inactivity... The Germans are preparing for another summer offensive. Reports from the front say the Nazis are wheeling up fresh material in reserves. Red Army planes are said to have destroyed or damaged at least 36 trucks in the last 24 hours. Otherwise, the lull is broken only by occasional artillery exchanges and light patrol activity. The Russians say they've repulsed several minor charges against their Donetsk River bridgeheads. On the central front, Soviet forces have consolidated positions 32 to 50 miles from Smolensk. The latest Moscow war bulletin reports that no important changes took place at any point on the 1,500-mile battle line. However, German planes are also striking at Russian communications. 80 bombers raided a railway station, but dispatches say red planes broke up their formation. The newspaper Pravda reports a great increase in aviation transport traffic, with heavily loaded trains and planes on both sides shuttling supplies and men to the front and carrying away wounded. That's the latest on the fighting in Russia. Admiral Radio had hoped to bring you a report direct from Moscow by Quentin Reynolds, war correspondent for Collier's magazine. But atmospheric conditions have made the broadcast unintelligible. However, Reynolds has cabled us this report. He says, Moscow is the city where Hitler's dream ended. Someday, historians will immortalize the small suburb of Moscow called Kimka. You can get on a streetcar in front of the Kremlin and be in Kimka within half an hour. It's just another suburb. But Kimka will live forever, because it was here in October of 1941 that Hitler's dream ended. His army was battering at the gates of Moscow then, and one day a German tank penetrated as far as obscure Kimka. That tank and the German soldiers in the tank died, and the Nazi dream of Russian conquest died too. Hitler never was able to get that close to the Kremlin again. I was in Moscow then, and the city was unafraid but grim, and no smiles were seen on the men and women who walked on the streets of Moscow. Moscow was fighting with her back to the wall, and she knew it. But she fought back just as London once fought back, and faith and courage of her sons and daughters were awarded. Now I've returned to this city of courage. The nearest German is 200 miles away, and Moscow is confident that soon that distance will be increased. Moscow is not overconfident or falsely optimistic, but Moscow is no longer the grim place it was in 1941. Today, the streets are thronged with soldiers on leave. Each night, the opera is crowded with men in uniform and with fracture hands. The people of Moscow have been at war now for nearly two years, but they are neither weary nor have they weakened. Quentin Reynolds continues, When you come here directly from New York, as I did, It is impossible not to notice the great contrast. A month ago, I was annoyed because sometimes in New York, I had to walk a few blocks before getting a taxi cab. Here in Moscow, there are no taxi cabs, no private cars, and no transportation except street cars and subway. Mostly, we walk. Gasoline, oil, and rubber are too precious to use for anything except war purposes. The dim out in New York annoyed us all a bit. Here in Moscow, there's a complete blackout and you don't go out at night unless it's absolutely necessary. When I left New York, some people were grumbling because of food rationing. Here in Moscow, you can get one slice of butter per day, one lump of sugar per meal, and of course, steaks, roast beef, and chops, as we know them at home, do not exist. When I left home, people were worrying because whiskey and gin were scarce, and it was difficult to obtain vintage wine. Here in Moscow, one is very lucky to get an occasional glass of vodka. There's nothing else. Moscow is making teetotalers out of even American correspondents. We have a midnight curfew in Moscow. The streets must be kept clear in the event German bombers come. Each of us has one electric light bulb in his room, no more. Electric power is needed for war purposes. We seldom have water in Moscow. Power and fuel are needed to run the factories. New York is really not so badly off, after all. But no matter what privations, no one here grumbles. Even now, the people at home have a tendency to let the army fight the war. Moscow knows that armies alone can't win wars. Here, every civilian knows that this is his war, and he's doing something about it. Yesterday, I stood on an embankment of the river. Springs come to Moscow and open the veins of the river... and the ice has been swept away by the swift current. Here on the embankment was a group of schoolchildren, about 50 of them. None was older than 12, and one-third of them were girls. They were drilling with wooden guns. A red army man marched them up and down the embankment, giving crisp orders... and the youngsters marched smartly and skillfully. These children of Mars drilled for an hour, and when they went hurrying back... Not the baseball diamonds or playgrounds. Moscow is at war. Each child has his war job. The report from Quentin Reynolds goes on. I've heard people in New York grumble about the servant problem. Here in Moscow, only the very young and very old can be released for domestic service. Housewives with husbands and sons at the front have to do their own marketing, cooking, and housework. And take care of the babies besides. When school is dismissed and drilling is over, these school kids help. They mind babies. They help with dishes. They run errands. They scrub floors. They're organized into what they call the pioneers, much like our Boy Scouts. They work hard, these children who have no time to play, but they're happy. Each child has heard his mother and father say a hundred times, This is your war, too. And each child makes it his war. Every civilian in Moscow has made it his war. Perhaps New York can learn something about the City of Courage. And that's the report from Moscow, cabled to us by Quentin Reynolds. In Britain, allied bombers and fighters are reported to have been over the enemy-occupied continent today following a heavy attack on Germany last night. For these details and other developments, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS London, John Daly reporting.
5: The RAF was out last night, attacking targets in southwest Germany. Details so far are scanty. The communique reported heavy clouds, which made it impossible to see results. Two German fighters were destroyed. Eighteen RAF bombers are missing. It's thought that the RAF force was a large one. Coastal residents heard planes roaring over the coast from midnight to dawn. A climax is near in the French problem. General de Gaulle presided over a three-hour meeting of the French National Committee today, which was convened to hear General Couture's report. Yesterday, Couture, de Gaulle's representative, returned from North Africa, was closeted with de Gaulle in a private conference on the formula for French unity, which Couture and Giraud had agreed on. The committee has had nothing official to say about the conference, although a spokesman reported that Couture told the committee that all Frenchmen in North and West Africa were eager to see the establishment of a central and provisional authority as soon as possible. Catrou appears to have held the floor for most of the meeting. Evidently, he was impressing on de Gaulle and the committee the urgent necessity of accepting the formula he arrived at with Giraud. The giraud catrou plan is the essence of fairness and has the complete backing of the British and American governments. A high-fighting French official has told me that the meeting went well today. But in authoritative quarters here, there is still no disposition to be too optimistic about de Gaulle's reception of the plan. It's hoped that Couture may be able to convince de Gaulle that a refusal to accept the plan will be considered capricious by the British and American governments, and that it cannot but result in the loss of the sympathy of many who have consistently supported the fighting French. It's worth noting that today's London Observer, an independent, middle-of-the-road paper, is very critical of the fighting French attitude it flatly states that the task of overcoming the obstacles to French unity has not been lessened by the attitude adopted by the fighting French in recent events. It is the first time that an influential London paper has used such strong language in criticizing the fighting French, and it reflects a growing impatience in British circles with de Gaulle's intractability. With all the problems that face the United Nations before the war can be won... It might be well for all of us to pay attention to a notice that was put up on the bulletin board of the services club in London's West End last night by an enterprising soldier poet. It said, the Lord gave us two ends to use, one to think with, one to sit with. The war depends on which we choose. Heads we win, tails we lose. Now back to CBS New York and Doug Edwards.
1: Next, for news on the home front, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting.
6: The president had until last midnight to veto the debt limit extension bill, which carries a rider repealing his order limiting salaries to $25,000 a year. Since he failed to do so, the bill is now presumably a law, and the ceiling on salaries is lifted. At 4 o'clock this afternoon, however, the President will issue a statement on the subject and will doubtless explain his reasons for giving in to Congress. Speaking of price ceilings, economic stabilizer Burns told us at the White House on Friday that we might expect an OPA announcement yesterday fixing prices on many food items at levels somewhat lower than those prevailing today. No such announcement was forthcoming yesterday, and it will not be made today either. But an officer of the OPA has just assured me that ceiling prices will be announced sometime in the next few days. The fact that the announcement is being held up, however, may have something to do with the squabble now going on over grade labeling. This, of course, is designed to protect the consumer, to assure him that quality is standard. Since price control went into effect, however, many food processors have found it either necessary or convenient to lower quality in order to make a profit at the prices fixed by the OPA. So far, OPA in some instances has tended to wink at the practice in the belief that it would be powerless to prevent it in any case. But labor has been making an issue of the matter and OPA has been paying lip service to the proposition that lowering of quality is in violation of the Price Control Act. Here in Washington, it's understood that the president intended to demand grade labeling in his hold the line message last Thursday night, but that he struck out all reference to the matter at the insistence of Mr. Brown. This has angered the representatives of labor, and they're now demanding the removal from OPA of certain former advertising men whom they accuse of representing the interests of clients rather than the public. In the last analysis, however, what OPA will do about grade labeling will probably be decided by economic stabilizer Burns, and he's believed to be strongly in favor of enforcement. I return you now to New York and Doug Edwards.
1: Here in our New York studio is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. The
2: British pursuit of Marshal Rommel's beaten Africa Corps continues on a broadening front as the full power of the British Eighth Army deploys in the Tunisian Central Plain. Meanwhile, American, French, and British troops on the German flank are making some progress in the direction of Kairouan, and the British First Army is advancing east of Bab. Thus the Axis forces are caught in a narrowing semicircle. The fall of both Cairoan and the port of Seuss seems imminent, and the great question at this moment is whether the Africa Corps can stop its withdrawal and stand firm on the Enfidaville ridges between Seuss and Tunis, or whether it has gotten altogether out of hand under relentless punishment and is about to be herded to destruction against the sea in the vicinity of Tunis itself. Weighing every known factor, the chances appear about even for this as against Rummel's chance to make a new stand. Montgomery is a master of pursuit, one of the most difficult operations of war, as he has already amply demonstrated. Short of Infeiteville, there are no terrain features favorable for defense and nothing offering any shelter from the Allied air attacks. The 8th Army has shown incredible endurance both as to men and machines. The African Corps must be suffering not only heavy losses but severe deterioration of morale. Thus, all the ingredients of rout and dissolution are present. If Rommel can stem this tide, if he can make another stand, he will have well earned the gratitude of his fear. In that case, the Tunisian battle will become a great siege, with the Allies holding every sort of advantage, but the Germans will have gained more time. If, on the other hand, as is possible but by no means certain, Rommel has lost control of his forces, then it seems likely that within a very few days we shall see a great German disaster in Tunisia and only the great fortress of Berserk will be left for systematic reduction by the methodical methods of siege warfare.
1: General MacArthur reports from Australia that our bombers have made three trips over the Jap base at Weywalk and its harbor area, shore installations, seaplane base, and air drone. A thousand-ton cargo ship was destroyed and two others damaged. Weywalk is on New Guinea's northeastern coast about 470 airline miles from our base at Port Moresby... and 330 miles northwest of Lai. That's the latest news direct from Australia. For an analysis of the growing air power of the Japanese in that area... here in our New York studio is Columbia's correspondent, William J. Dunn... who recently returned from the southwest Pacific. Mr. Dunn.
3: You've heard a lot of talk in the past few weeks... concerning Japanese concentrations in the chain of islands which front Australia to the north. Increased shipping activity, movement of ground troops, and particularly increased air strength throughout this whole area. The news of the past few days from General McCarthy's headquarters and from Admiral Halsey's South Pacific area seems to leave little doubt that our Pacific enemies are making progress in the mechanical strengthening of those positions from which any further southward moves must be launched or which must bear the brunt of any Allied attempt to, to move northward. Japanese planes, in ever-increasing numbers, have been reported in the Guadalcanal area, in New Britain, New Ireland, and in the Kandari section of the Dutch East Indies. George Morad, reporting to CBS World News from Australia, says the Japanese have succeeded in establishing a major air base at Waywalk on the northern coast of New Guinea, a base which should prove a potent factor in Japan's defense of Les Salamores, or even Rabaul. Still, there is one point which should not be overlooked in considering the South Pacific picture. There has been nothing in the news of the past week to indicate that the quality of the Japanese air concentration is in any way proportionate to the numerical increase in planes. The 98-plane raid on our shipping in the Guadalcanal area last week can be said to have failed. The news from General MacArthur's area indicates that attempts to divert our repeated attacks on such enemy bases as Weiwak, Kaviang, Rabaul, and Madang have been consistently ineffective. And there seems to be every reason to believe that the Japanese pilot operating in the South Pacific today is not the skilled, clever combat player we were meeting six or eight months ago. You have often heard that time is the number one requirement of the Japanese in the Pacific today. Time to consolidate far-flung gains Time to replace heavy shipping losses. Time to exploit and develop the vast wealth of raw material the Nipponese have won in the past 16 months. It is equally true that, that the Japanese are sorely in need of time to train Air Corps personnel. Pilots, navigators, bombardiers, gunners, to replace the heavy losses suffered during their first six months of consistent success. American airmen in the Pacific never made the mistake of underestimating the ability of the Japanese flyers they first encountered out there. But they are equally certain that Japan is finding it difficult to train first-class replacements in this all-important arm. Our own pilots out there are asking only that we do not allow Japan the time she wants and requires for the development of an adequate pilot training program.
4: That was William J. Dunn. Now, here's a message from our sponsor. Salt water plays an important part at Admiral Radio's two great plants these days. Much of the radio and electronic equipment now pouring from Admiral Assembly Lines goes directly into action with the United States Navy. Every device Admiral builds for the Navy must withstand a special salt water test, undergo a flood of salt water for 200 consecutive hours, eight days and nights, plus eight hours more. Not only small, delicate parts, but the complete, highly complicated instrument must function perfectly after being subjected to this grueling test. Admiral's peacetime policy, that of producing only the finest in radio, gave Admiral the experience to build such equipment and build it well enough to meet the high standards established by both the Army and Navy. Admiral's peacetime policy also won public confidence with the result that Admiral became the world's largest manufacturer of radio-phonograph combinations with automatic record changers. Now, Admiral is using this capacity and experience to serve America's fighting men, to build the radio and electronic equipment they need in coordinating their forces, directing their battles, and winning freedom for the world. The United States this week gives special recognition to the Boys Clubs of America. The boys' club movement is taking an active part in the biggest job we have today, the winning of the war. More than half a million former members are serving in the Army and Navy. Another quarter million, all boys' club members, are undergoing pre-military training and working as victory volunteers. Our hats are off to the boys' clubs of America. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America Smart Set. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater, Wrigley Building, Chicago.